Hello. Hello, Jenny. Hello. Hi, Danielle. How's it going? <laughs> amazing. We've all made it into the into the internet chat room. It's like in, very interpersonal and yet totally impersonal in a funny way. I know. We're not, none of our bodies are in the same place. We're deeply disembodied. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm on a bed, though, if that helps create the image. Where? I'm just lying here. It's kind of nice. It feels very comfortable. And where are you located geographically? Where is the bed located? Uh, the bed is in a bedroom in Milano. In uh-huh. y- Yeah, is that what you mean? It's, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's a private room. I feel, yeah, I feel like it's good. I'm ready. Uh-huh. So you're in Italy. Yeah, in Italy. And I'm still in Los Angeles. It continues being overcast as it's been the last few weeks, oddly. Is that a thing? I think, yeah, there's uh, this May gray, um, which transitioned into June gloom. <laughs> I think June gloom is more of a thing, but oddly, the rhyme of the previous month is I was about to say, <laughs> did you make that up or is that a thing? No, no, it is a well-known fact. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> because it's a slight difference in weather in L.A., so they give it a name. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's sort of a cheesy postcard name, isn't it? I like it, though. Roses of blue and June is in gloom. Oh, um, it, In Brooklyn, it is very sunny and nice. But I am getting sick, so I don't like it. I want the sun is like shining into my window and I'm kind of hiding in a corner. Oh, but that's okay. Like a true vampire. We'll hear more about the disease um, on our body break (laughs) later in the episode. That's right. The body break is coming. (laughs) Stay tuned. So, yeah, this is Center Subject. And we have a guest with us today, uh, in addition to the usual party of Jenny and Lenny. Um, Danielle Lesovitz is joining us for our episode on love. And Danielle has just made a film, which um, recently premiered at Cannes Festival. Cannes. I always have a hard time pronouncing that correctly. When I say Cannes, it sounds so, you know... Can like I know, yeah. but I think that's the proper pronunciation for American accents. Would you say it's Kong? No, it's somewhere between the two. It's a sound that I don't think we can make. Can. It's like cow. There's yeah. something rounder about it, but but I think it's better to just not try. Let's not try. Yeah, let's not try. <laughs> but in Russian, I think it's a great name in Russian, Konny. Oh, that's better. Yeah. So unrelated. <laughs> I think we should all pronounce it that way. Yeah. What is it? Konny? How do you do the last part of it one more time? Yeah, so there's a sound, which um, I think exists in Turkish as well. Yeah, it's a sort of a guttural, low in your throat sound. And yeah, you just say Konny. And basically, oh, it multiply. Wow. It's like a multiple for con. So it's like you start with a con, and then it goes deep in your throat, and you swallow it. Oh yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's what the okay. French kind of insinuates too, because you have the extra ends in the es. So I mean, it is a plural. It's a plural place to go to. Which yeah. Is a funny thing to go to a more than one location. Okay, but moving on. So Danielle made a film, and we haven't seen it yet, but we've read about it, and we want to see it. But we wanted to hear about it before we see it. Danielle, could you tell us about your film? It's Port Authority. Sure. It's a a film that is about a character from the Midwest, sort of like recession era family lost his house he's really displaced and he comes to new york 
hoping to live with his sister, being told that he can live with his sister and his sister just doesn't show up to the bus station and eventually kind of denies him living a living situation. But in the meantime, he falls in love with this woman of trans experience who belongs to a Kiki ball community. So I don't know if I need to specify what that is, but and he navigates, I think, his own feelings of falling in love with her and not to give too much away. It doesn't really Mm -hmm. end all that well. Mm -hmm. And so he has to kind of go through the the rupturing of yeah. of his love for her mm. and that's sort of it really it's it's like um well, it's a love story yeah. yeah it can be read as this kind of classic love story that's sort of been updated yeah. for modern people but there's also a complexity that may or may not be caught by everyone um yeah. but maybe you just have to go see it perhaps well there's yeah. several sort of strands of the narrative stand out in the contemporary moment of the where that young man is from and the unconventional nature of that love what we don't think we usually think of people of his background as quite conservative socially and that seems like a unusual story i want to know what happens but i don't want you to give yeah. it away i know it's hard so. to talk about something without giving it away but yeah i guess politically it just seems in terms of thinking about gender and politics and economy it seems um a, a story that covers several territories that don't always touch or touch you know in, in kind of a frictionful way right yeah it's definitely talking about things that sort of placing maybe a finger on a kind of wound, but doing it in a gentle way, I would mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. And by um, way, of, and like using love to talk about the relationship or like a cultural place that's existing for us now, like using love between two people is something really that people can understand subjectively and put themselves in the place of the lovers. You know, we have a lot of, we have a lot of room for lovers, I think. Right, we do. Yeah. It distracts from the kind of the notion of these two identities and conflict, right? Where you just Mm -hmm. focus on the love and everybody, you know, has most likely experienced that falling in love and that breaking up and not necessarily being in control of these feelings. So a lot of these ideas of these people being very separate and different kind of fade away, which I think is sort of the idea. Yeah, that seems like a really interesting and lovely idea because I think there is an idea of um, identity politics as something that serves to split the workers, if you will, in the kind of like one reading of Marxist view of society and Mm -hmm. split the workers. Right. It takes the split away. It joins the workers. It joins all the workers. I don't know why I think of everyone in terms of work, but yeah, that was sort of the point. I mean, I'm not particularly political, but I do find a lack of conversation about class, especially in the U S and it feels like that lack of discussion only empowers the forces or the ideologies that we're sort of trying to work against in terms of creating a more equal society. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I was hoping that that discussion might come out of the film, although I don't know if now is the time for that to happen. It it seems like people are really steeped in these conversations about identity politics and not sort of Mm -hmm. economic similarities. Mm-hmm. I think some people are working towards getting there, but I think the class discussion is always the last one to be had for some reason in America. And, you know, we're kind of afraid to talk about class, you know, or the Why thing where people that? can't talk about. 
I don't know. Well, I don't know. I, I could have a theory. We talked about it a little <laughs> bit in our last episode, which was about scams. Well, that like, you know, our whole country is built on this like obsession with tricking people into thinking that engaging in capitalism is what gives them a social identity and like how that's just like how we've originated and we have a hard time getting away from it or we're always working with that idea that engaging with capitalism is what it means to be American. And and I may be something about British culture, like talking about being part of where we, the origins of some of the philosophies, like that they really don't allow being open and directly talking about these issues. It's like people are forced kind of to not talk about it. So that's where we're from. I'm not sure. It's strange. Right. I, I mean, I grew up with that also. Yeah. You grew up with discussions about it? Just or? not like <laughs> it's not okay to talk about money. It's not okay to talk about the loss of money or gaining money. It's if you're truly like a person of a higher class, yeah. then you don't, a, a marker of being higher class is you don't discuss money. Huh, interesting. And they were trying to be higher class, I think. So that was part of it. Yeah. And maybe to talk about it, or at least in this way, would disrupt the scam. Exactly. Because exactly. it's like if you're not talking about it as a way of ascending, I guess, in the up the ranks of capitalism, then you're sort of more deeply entrenched in the scam, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's like self-reinforcing somehow. The winners of the contest protect whether or not everyone knows that it's kind of a fake contest. Well, do you feel like, is it easier to talk about other identities? Because in some ways, it, it seems that it's easier. It's more accepted in certain in liberal circles. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's still hard when you're talking to a more conservative audience, I think. To talk about class. No, to talk about identity. I see. Know, about identifying as trans. Just still seems really difficult and dangerous. I find it fascinating how we find our identity as Americans. I feel like in Europe, if you go to anyone who's like in Italy or Switzerland or whatever, they have this foundation of like, I'm Italian mm -hmm. or like, I'm from this part of Italy or I'm from this. And in the US, we don't really have that. It's more mm. fragmented. And sometimes I wonder if... In general, somehow. Yeah, as a way of like having that human need of place or roots or self in a social context, we gravitate more towards, you know, race and mm. or... Mm -hmm. I don't know what we identify with, education, level of education, our jobs. We're like seeking identity. I think the scamification thing about being American is that we feel that we don't really have an intrinsic national identity, like, and we're not allowed to have one. So we have this hole where that would be in another country. I don't know if that's a great thing to have a national identity, like right. I'll put that aside, but it has like, its own problems. Yeah, we yeah. have like a vacuum, and so, and not to say that like seeking identity and having identity for yourself once you know, and it's a good thing. It can be, it can be a really good thing, but I think that we have a different relationship to finding it. We kind of have a particular American identity crisis, which can cause good things to happen, but also really bad things. You know, we can be the first people to be at the forefront of a social movement, I would say, out of that. But we also will fight each other in the way that we're fighting each other now, I think, in this, in like the modern times, you know, we'll like have these conflicts between identities and take them. Well, what, what did you say? We'll, we'll split the workers. Like we're very interested in splitting ourselves up. 
Right. Um, and I think that's why. And I don't know if that's good or bad, <laughs> but it is who we are. I think there's a generic idea here of, of, of equality that isn't correct, but people do hide behind it. Mm-hmm. And I think people try to find evidence of that equality. And in a strange way... Um, Maybe identity politics is helpful to that because it kind of allows you to transcend class, you know? You can just... Yeah. I was just thinking about how Caitlyn Jenner, for instance, seemed to be an icon for a moment. And it was odd to me somehow because she's such a privileged person economically. But somehow people were identifying. And I don't know. It's it's a bit... I'm out of my depth talking about these things. So I'm not really... I just took this... I've taken all these um, graduate school courses. So this is like the one... One of the really good things that I took from it. And I'm sorry that I don't know the writer who came up with this. But maybe I'll mention it later. But it's about um, target and agent identity. So, so most people identify most with the identity that they feel is their target identity. So the thing that they are oppressed most by and they don't associate themselves with their agent identity. So that's why like white feminism is really problematic because white feminists like lean into feminism and are very interested in in how they're oppressed as women, but they forget and dis- disassociate from their white privilege. So it's a really and I think this is like a really compassionate way to think about it instead of being like, well you're you know, you're a racist and you're a feminist and so nothing you're saying is legitimate it's the it's the natural tendency and Caitlyn Jenner is kind of part of that you know she is trans and so she was very interested in like being very forefront about this trans transformation or this change that she experienced in this very public way but has no awareness of herself as like a celebrity high class person you know and doesn't relate to that identity yeah does that make sense so so it's sort of like so interesting yeah yeah it's really interesting and so like if you are from many identities that experience oppression we do kind of stack them up and put the most privileged identity in the least um visible place even to ourselves and so part of that process is kind of bringing the awareness that you gain from your target experience to your agent experience and kind of helping them to communicate because class isn't um i'm just trying to connect it back to our discussion of why is class always the last thing we talk about because it seems like very relevant to maybe being a part of this agent identity yeah yeah you know where the target identities are so present it is like it's there's a silencing to it but i don't see that that's happening among um people of of mostly african-american activists because poverty has been such a big part of being an african-american activist or like I, i have been involved in a little bit of housing activism and these things like poverty activism and housing activism like are always really connected and to be and this is also about like gentrification and being a person of color who is you know, directly being kicked out of a community because of their class and because of the way class works. So the people at the forefront of those communities are almost always people of color because poverty affects people of color more greatly than it does white people. So I think to me, it's like a little bit more of a white person issue, I do think. And I think that it has to do with it's silenced in the white community. It's something that is not you know, necessarily accepted to be talked about. Maybe among the middle class or the or people who have experienced any experience that they have with wealth, you know? Yeah, so I was just curious about what was it like making the film, you know, and dealing with the themes and raising funds and 
you know, just all, all the different aspects of, you know, telling the story, which touches upon so many different raw topics. I didn't really pursue or find any financing in the U.S., mm-hmm. which I think is interesting to notice. Mm-hmm. It was mostly in Europe because I think there was a kind of a fascination. I mean, it's interesting. So, like, the story didn't really change much from the original concept of it, mm-hmm. Um which is either good or bad because it was written, you know, when Obama was president and we all thought Hillary Clinton would be the next president. And so it didn't really adjust too much to the change in the political landscape. Uh Although my understanding of like trans issues and like what it means to identify as trans became much more nuanced and sort of, I think, closer to as far as I can go closer to the experience of, of being trans, but um, and a person of color, I, I mean, I sort of tried my best while knowing that, you know, I have serious gaps in information and, you know, would call out to others to kind of inform the aspect mm-hmm. of the process of making it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was interesting to me that in the U.S., I think they felt like, okay, you're white, okay, you're queer, but I don't know that you should be telling this story. And I thought that was right. interesting. Whereas like in France and Italy, there's this sense of protection. It's like you're going to kill a generation of artists if you say that only p- certain people can talk about certain things and mm-hmm. you're sort of limiting the human ability to empathize and imagine and be mm-hmm. aware of blind spots right. and engage with other artists in in a right way so that was interesting to me it's also not a film it's the protagonist is a bit of an anti-hero in that we're not supposed to really empathize with him and we're not supposed to necessarily like him we're just supposed to kind of follow him he's our vehicle for reflecting on on certain decisions that he's making be it good or bad and so there's it seemed like there's more of a culture for these anti-hero movies and that was kind of interesting um but i think just three years ago especially in europe when i was talking about this story people really thought of trans women as drag queens or they couldn't really it's so um far behind in terms it's like Mm -hmm. kind of what being gay was 20 years ago maybe or 30 years Mm -hmm. ago it they're so behind in terms of the language that they can use. I mean, born a man was something that came up a lot. Did you see some of that in the reviews afterwards that came out? I see more in the reviews, more inaccuracies about language involving like ballroom culture more than mm-hmm. than trans experience, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. It seems like the critics sort of understand what they can and can't say, but or what they should and shouldn't say, but right. there was really no way of viewing a trans woman outside of her proximity to maleness. Hmm. So the first part of the job was to just really not educate, but do a kind of a test and cast a cis-passing person. And then, you know, their sort of minds are blown when you show them, here's, you know, here's the project, you know, this is someone who's cis passing and may or may not be cast in the final film, but, you know, this is kind of the feel of, this is a tone piece. And mm. and once people saw that tone piece, they were really excited because it was something that was absolutely new to them. Mm. There's a lot to be said about that, right, in terms of whether or not, I, I don't know that I originally wanted to make a film with a cis passing woman, but it's sort of like baby steps. And if an audience can watch a love story without knowing 
in the beginning that she's trans and ha- no, having no suspicions, then maybe there's something interesting that can happen when you mm-hmm. kind of rupture their idea of gender and of what is passing and what is not passing. And, huh. you know, I'm sure there's a larger discourse on what, it, yeah. you know, what it means to be passing and the beauty ideals and all that. But that was like an, an interesting first step that I felt was relevant to make. And then, so there was that, and then it just kind of, came about quite naturally after that, just uh, lots of revisions and research and assembling. I think the important thing was just assembling a team of like trans women of color to produce and to finding that right person that I could collaborate with on building the character and the role and, you know, asking just like questions of like consent. Is it okay if we do this or how would you do this? Or, you know, she really kind of shaped and made the character from her own experience, which I thought was a really fun sort of democratic way of filmmaking. Um, and yeah, just getting a crew that like, for me, the a lot of the crew is involved in like the ballroom community. So it was like people who were representing what was in front of the screen were, you know, part of it somehow mm-hmm. and just bit by bit, like getting, getting our people together. So that was kind of the process. I really want to see it. Do we know when it will be coming out in the States or in Europe? I'll know more about <laughs> distribution in a few days in the U.S. In France, we have our premiere in September. Oh. And I don't know so much about other countries yet. I see. So, oh. yeah, here and there. Mm-hmm. Port Authority. I'm going to Port Authority. find it. Yeah. Keep your eye out. Do you uh, spend a lot of time in Port Authority? <laughs> I'm scared because I, I try not to I, do that. Right? No, <laughs> I spend a lot of time in Penn Station. But I really like like these old, ugly, like yeah. weird transit stations right. for some reason. Um, they really have, they have a resonance, you know. Like there's like so many humans have passed through there. And They're also quite romantic. They are. I guess so. They're so They're neglected. They're also gross also. Gross. I mean there's They're there's a whole really subculture. Gross. Yeah. Just even yeah. the animals that live in there. I mean it's just like, right. like a little tiny world of humans. <laughs> um, well so I'm going to introduce my Bart's quote because I've been obsessed with talking about oh, yeah, yeah. Him on the podcast so what is this from and why okay so and why she's like why <laughs> um well uh, this is the lover's discourse by roland bart and every time i talk to anyone who's in love or is dealing with a breakup or any sort of situation i always like am reminded um, of this book and I always try to give it to people or I try to talk about it and and every love song and love story I ever watch from when I first read it to now is just be- I don't know it's become really important um, and so I wanted to talk about it in this context and kind of just in general uh, even though I'm the only one who's a big fan of it but that's cool no I know there are a lot of people who find it interesting but I'll introduce it to you guys I'm not gonna sell it but I am gonna like talk about it um so i have a couple quotes and um one of the big concepts um is about engulfment so i'll read a couple of these quotes and he's very poetic and first person he talks about his own experience a lot which i think is a fun way to do this kind of philosophy So here is um, a little bit of a lover's discourse. Either woe or well-being, sometimes I have a craving to be engulfed. 
One day in the rain, we're waiting for the boat at the lake. From happiness this time, the same outburst of annihilation sweeps through me. This is how it happens sometimes. Misery or joy engulfs me without any particular tumult ensuing, nor any pathos. I am dissolved, not dismembered. I fall, I flow, I melt. Such thoughts, grazed, touched, tested, the way you test the water with your foot, can recur. Nothing solemn about them. This is exactly what gentleness is. And gentleness is in italics. It's very important. I think that's lovely. I think that, to me, sounds a lot like what it's like to fall in love. This, like, it's almost like nature, you know, like a storm falls upon you and you're just, like, engulfed. But it's not violent. Even though you're dismembered, dissolved, you fall. It's got all this, you know, violent language to it. But it's, like, utterly gentle at the same time. There's, like, this force to it. And I wanted to put that out there. So that's one element of it. I thought that was really nice. And um, I don't know, maybe just like in terms of the film or maybe if we can just, I'm curious about why does this happen? What What is your guys' experience with this fall, like this place between the violence and the gentleness of falling in love? And I don't know. I definitely relate to it. And the sickness of it, right? The softness. Uh, yeah. I relate to it too. But when you were when you were reading it, it actually and I was telling Elena, I was like, I have nothing philosophical to say. So I'm just gonna talk about my own personal experience when it was introduced that the subject would be about love. But actually when you were reading, I was reminded of um Sartre's I don't even know if I'm saying his name right. Sa Sa Sartre. Let's just mispronounce French philosophers. That's totally fine. Just accept it. Yeah. <laughs> That's allowed his, on this his, podcast. The book, Nausea, and in the forward, he just sort of mentions that the self um, knows that it's ephemeral and it knows mm. that it's a bit of a, I don't know if lie is the word, but it's this very naturally unstable element and it it needs in order to kind of keep up this lie to itself, it needs to find a kind of validation. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of reminded of that because I think when we are in love or we're falling in love, it is that sort of that a disintegration, right, of mm -hmm. who we thought mm -hmm. we were, which could have been false all along. And probably is yeah. the material of it is fundamentally ephemeral and unstable and, mm -hmm. you know, is afraid to admit that to itself somehow. Mm -hmm. because it's mm -hmm. it's afraid of its own annihilation but love is this wonderful thing that almost brings us very close to a point of annihilation of a kind of self-annihilation we almost like yeah. crave the annihilation and right. we crave because we want to be recreated yeah mm -hmm. and we hope that we'll be recreated through the gaze of the other and that in the lover's yeah in the lover's eyes something or, like yeah. this yeah it's a way to see oneself but it's also a bit how do you say scary in that what you're seeing yeah. is is just as fictitious as what you were before right. it's just a different optic facade somehow yeah mm -hmm. like a strange rebirth that we think is going to be into our true self or into a better self but it's since it's always being recreated i don't know if it's a lie but it's like we relate to this feeling of lie and truth 
And I feel like the the new beloved is like this sense that this is going to make it true. The lie will now become true because of this beloved. The strength of the other kind of makes us feel like the weakness of the subjective self is not going to be so weak anymore. And right. so it like sucks it in or something. Yeah. It anchors it. And then the problem though for me, at least in my experience, is that I form a dependency then. Well, me too. It's like you become dependent on this Gaze. become like a suction cup yes <laughs> yeah and so on the one hand it's really positive because you're like being infused with all of this new energy and this sense of possibility and at the same time you're losing a kind of autonomy yeah I feel like it becomes immobile in a way yeah you really suffer it's like for me when I think of like that being in love feeling it immediately comes with feelings of just deep suffering and longing which yeah. are good when you it's like if you want that experience maybe it's nice but it's sometimes not ideal to or healthy or oh, right I think it was last week I came across this article in The Guardian that stipulated that, in fact, single people, well, single women, um, single women are... I read this. Did you see that? That they're happier, that recent research shows that single women are, in fact, much happier than uh, married women or people in relationships, maybe, like not of married, you know, but just and basically, if you're a woman, you're there's a higher chance of you being happier if you're single. Um, than in a relationship, which I guess actually being in a relationship doesn't mean that you're in love. But I suppose I do think that for me, being in a in love probably will entail a relationship. That's the next part of the conversation. Maybe it's like yeah. Well, when I read the story, I felt very skeptical. I mean, for many reasons. You know, <laughs> what is happiness? How did they conduct this research? Like, what are the questions? And but also, I think that. As also Eastern European, the idea of being in a relationship and a family life is like deeply ingrained as a thing of happiness, like a harbor of safety and happiness. And mm-hmm. yeah, I felt like it was also some sort of neoliberal trope of individualism, mm-hmm. you know, that was trying to sell the idea of like, well, you don't really need to be connected to other people. You could just be happy in your own corner by yourself. I read the same article and I I had two takeaways. Mm. One was, it was mostly saying that from my understanding, well, one is that men sort of found more happiness in a marriage than women. True. It extended their lives. I thought that said yeah. yeah. Right. And for women, it's kind of the opposite, which to me speaks to like a, a power dynamic and a distortion between mm-hmm. men and women. Yeah. What about women being in a relationship with women? That's, I mean, when I saw it, I was like, I wish, you know, because I've been in like same sex relationship for like five years now. And I was like, did you guys interview right. yeah. women and say, say, because I feel as someone who's experienced both hetero and homosexual relationships, I must say that it's really nice to not have to deal with male privilege and male entitlement and like mm. kind of adjusting myself accordingly and becoming I, th- I feel like for me, at least through a same-sex relationship, and I think my partner would agree with that, is like we become aware of all of the ways in which we minimized ourselves to mm. to kind of serve what we thought was just normal without questioning it. Right. And so it's really nice to not be assigned like, oh, you're a caregiver or, oh, you're you know meant to 
sort of deal with my needs and it's not a two-way street all the time. And so I, I wonder if there are relationships where that power and balance isn't a part of it, if women would mm-hmm. be more satisfied in relationships. Right. Well, like if there's a stronger sense of egalitarian emotional labor or everybody has the idea in their head or in just their behavior that that emotional labor exists, then you won't have this constant sense of trying to, <laughs> that you're doing labor that's not being addressed or you're doing labor that is not seen. And I think that that not being seen in doing the labor or that, dis, yeah, that lack of equality or it's like the, the disconnect between those two things. I think the woman is, is doing so much energy to try, or it's like using a lot of energy to try to get that power back. And it's like that seeking of power that's seeking to be seen, you know, and by someone who is just engaging in patriarchy and doesn't even see what they're doing. I think that that probably is the wearing down element that makes it harder for women to be in marriages and maybe like in the more contemporary. So you believe the research? I was like, hmm. Well, I mean, I think that the the politics of what they're saying, I think that what happened was that if you inc- if you introduce feminism into any sort of patriarchal arrangement, you start to think of things in terms of labor, you start to think of things in terms of yeah, whether or not people are things are fair and um it sounds like that's kind of where they were coming from from that article, but you can also maybe talk about traditional or I don't know our grandparents relationships where women had a different sense of there was a different place for women in relationships and hetero relationships where they were you know more respected or they were listened to in a different way yeah I'm not sure I I am super dubious about happiness surveys well, happiness in general <laughs> yeah what, is, what does that look I mean, like happier less happy sure my degree of happiness like changes throughout the day so many times ask me you know at lunch and get one answer and then yeah but I do think that it's helpful and motivating maybe for people involved in heterosexual marriage women involved in heterosexual marriages but mostly men that they're looking at it and thinking about oh well maybe I need to be more concerned with the happiness of my spouse and maybe my happiness has been made primary in this arrangement and I need to work on that you know I don't think that's a bad thing to get out there in the world even you know particularly today so 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 pragmatic I think it's important to have articles like that that sort of counter our beliefs and and what's supposed to bring us happiness so in that sense I think it's nice but yeah I I do wonder what their methods were well is there um social pressure to be in a relationship or oh is that still i guess i'm not sure actually um is that still a marker of success or oh, maybe it is actually i think it is i mean i feel like it's less so but maybe i think more people like get married the younger people that i hang out with are really way more into getting married and have traditional arrangements mm. than i've been in my generation so i feel mm, like things got true. a lot more conservative than from when I was like 25. Mm-hmm. Generations are weird. They change and go That's back and forth. interesting. Yeah, I find it disturbing, <laughs> but I don't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a stronger decision, I think, to be single mm-hmm. in life, right? So then we have to ask, I'm, I'm just thinking about this study and it's like, who selects to be yeah. single? And it's most likely people who really want to be single. And so they're going to... Of course, they'll be happy. Yeah. yeah and maybe the default is to be in a relationship. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But also, we get into relationships for so many reasons that aren't necessarily 
positive. Oh, yes, for sure. And can kind of help our own unhappiness, if that may, like, can yeah. add to, you know, if, if you have, like, a trauma bond with someone or right. if you have all of these weird kind of coupling strategies and you stay in that, it, yeah. it's going to make you unhappy. So, yeah. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Both are making unhappy. I was unhappy um, in my relationship and I'm quite unhappy now that I'm exiting it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's just my personality i'm not sure it's, it's unhappy your equal levels reason. of unhappy but it's the various i think it varies yeah well i mean a lot of the what i've been reading in my social work education is like about how humans are group centered and they want to be involved in a group and yeah i think that's what i want more well that group doesn't really have to be your family it doesn't have to be a couple right well family can look differently yeah, yeah it doesn't just have to be a couple family it can just be, you know, sure. your cat and you know, right. Jenny and Danielle <laughs> at a given moment. Seriously. Danielle on occasion. But yeah, we can't expect to have, like, all of our needs met by our partner anyways. Yeah, like, we exactly. need an extended group. I think that is very right, yeah. I think there's that expectation. I think there is a lot of people, especially today, do expect to get all those things from one person, whereas we should try to, you know, disseminate our attention span. I mean, that's just... Impossible. Impossible. And enormously, like, it's so much pressure on a on a relationship. Yes. I feel like a primary whatever partner, they might only need to give you, like, something small, you know, and then you reach mm -hmm. out to other people to, mm -hmm. to get those sort of more nourishing connections and needs met. I agree. I think it's exactly that. I have another quote. I just think it's pretty. Um, so in this book, he talks a lot about, I forget what it's called, but it's about Werther and it's written by Goethe. It's a lot of pronunciation stuff. Um, I thought we were only doing French ones today. No, I'm sorry. German. <laughs> oh. The Germans have entered the field. Um, okay. From the left? From the left. I don't know, actually. Okay. We need to look into it. Um, I never read it on purpose and I really never read Goethe, so I wouldn't know. But this is just sort of treated like a, a you know an uber love story, which are like a important mm -hmm. Charlotte and Werther are the lovers. So he talks about their love story as a way to talk about all love stories. And so and also one of the great things about this book, the idea is that anytime you fall in love with anyone, you've entered the lover's discourse, mm -hmm. which means you've entered every story you've ever seen or read about love you are now engaged in the story and when we engage with one another in the love story we're, we're kind of living it but we're also playing back and forth there's like a conversation of the love story so it's almost like people always want to have the last word you know like when you're breaking up or something it's there's always this like back and forth um, and there's a theory that that he puts forward that even a suicide, a terrible suicide, you know, at the end of a relationship is actually that lover trying to have the final word in the breakup. I <laughs> so agree like, with that completely. Yeah. So like, <laughs> by the way, the, the lover's discourse continues like, you know, and then you can be engaged in it, you know, even when you're broken up, you know, maybe you're very old and you're remembering it. You're still like having that conversation with the person. And it's just like this infinite back and forth that happens. OK, so that's what this is about. So there are many songs and melodies about the beloved's absence. And yet this classic figure is not to be found in Werther. The reason is simple. Here the loved object Charlotte does not move. It is the amorous subject Werther, Werther who at a certain moment departs. It is the other who leaves. It is I who remain. 
The other is in the condition of perpetual departure, of journeying. The other is by vocation, migrant, fugitive. I, I who love, by converse vocation, am sedentary, motionless, at hand, in expectation, nailed to the spot, in suspense, like a package in some forgotten corner of a railway station. Ooh. Station. <laughs> station. See, I told you stations were romantic. <laughs> stations are so romantic, right? Mm-hmm. They're a great place to be a singular eye, you know, waiting for things to, or, you know, desiring someone else who may be in the station <laughs> or maybe on the other end of a train out there in the world traveling and, you know, the eye is waiting. Yeah. yeah. But is it one of those cases where because the subjective eye, Werther, what's his name? Warner in this Werther. case? Yeah, Werther. Werther is, <laughs> I mean, just trying to connect it back to what we said earlier, it's because he's seeing himself through mm-hmm. this the mm-hmm. beloved's gaze and that gaze is growing more distant. He feels right. sort of neglected or abandoned right. by mm-hmm. this gaze. Right? Yeah. Can right. we sort of see it in conversation with that? I think that's interesting. I think for me in breakups, the most useful bit of advice that I've received is, and I think it speaks to that is the more you think about the person and maybe in this context, the more you engage in a lover's discourse with that person, the more that relationship continues to exist. Mm. Yeah. So to avoid suffering, if that's your objective, unless you like suffering, but to avoid suffering, it's to really Mm. not engage in that discourse with that person Mm -hmm. and in your head and in your thoughts and to just... Yeah, I was about to say, does it involve the mental discourse? Yes, it does. It definitely does. So it's sort of like whenever you find yourself thinking of the person or talking to the person, you just stop. Yeah. And I think after time, you can't even pick up the threads of conversation because how do you speak to someone who is no longer speaking back to you in some sense. They have become mute, a sculpture. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good visualization. Just picture them a sculpture with no words. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that is great advice. I love it. To all the listeners. And then you pick up the discourse with someone else or right. with yourself. I don't know. Yeah. Well, so like this totally connects to object relations, which is like a big psychology thing that I talk about sometimes that I love and am learning about. And object relations is kind of this this exactly where it is about you know it's a psychological relationship it's a relationship in between you and the client and psychology where it relates to the early bond to the caregiver so which would be the object and then the person is having a relationship so any relationship that anyone is in even friendships or any kind of relatively close relationship we're always relating to the idea of the early caretaker. Mm. So in psychotherapy, you're supposed to replicate that a positive early relationship. So it's like about seeing someone and validating what they're saying and trying to be really in their Mm. experience. And there's like a physical connection. And there is kind of this interesting stuff about a transitional object, like a like a blanket that has to be worn by the, you know, it has to be worn down to nothing by the child. It has to smell funny. Like you can't watch a transitional object. So there is this kind of sensual body stuff there that I think then later gets expressed sexually in this like connection between two people in this very interesting elemental deep body connection that relates to early childhood, you know, deep connection with the parent maybe, or I don't know. I mean, 
this is sort of theories that I'm having and is also related to psychology. But this object is grand and sort of this idea of the mother that we create or the parent or caretaker that we created when we were tiny babies, that never stops. And I think that the lover gets connected with the object, with the with that like caretaker. Yeah, and like the longing and desire and the physical issues, you know, that's all very connected to. It's interesting how many people today go to therapists to deal with issues of love and in love. Yeah. Or not finding love. It seems like necessary. Yeah. Well, that's good. It gives you good uh, tips like the one Danielle just gave. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't a therapist, actually. That was just a random person, but it was really helpful. My understanding of like early infancy, like when you're born, you're in a sort of euphoric state where you're egoless and you're sort of connected to the universe and Mm -hmm. you have no sense of being a separate self. And it's sort of like the height in some ways Mm -hmm. of your experience in connection. And then when you understand that there's sort of you and then there's this caregiver figure, it's actually quite traumatizing because suddenly there's a disconnection between yourself and the universe. And then it kind of gets packaged in this weird way with the object and the connection or disconnection that you have from that object is, you know, is a source of a lot of trauma and the Mm -hmm. desire to kind of get back to that early Mm -hmm. infant state seems like a really strong drive. And it's possibly what, I don't know, like what when we really fall in love with someone and we experience that sort of engulfment, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it could be kind of a re-experiencing of both that early sensation of connection and of like unity with not only, you know, yourself and the universe and this other object, but also like a re-engaging with that trauma of also Mm -hmm. being disconnected from that person Mm -hmm. and also being a separate self. Yeah, and healing it. That's one of the things I connect with a lot is like that, that each new relationship or, you know, each new love is possibly an opportunity to heal something or to, to go back to those early elemental ruptures, which is why I think it feels so mystical. And because those early connections are, are, I love how you said that too, like just very deeply our connections to the whole universe and to our, our connection as an individual, our like oneness with the whole world that we experienced, but then we lost, you know, in when we were suddenly disconnected from a caregiver or we experienced our individuality for the first time or something. But yeah, that, that it's like going back. There's this opportunity to go back to connection. Mm-hmm. Do you think that if a person is fully healthy in that they have a very sophisticated and mature sense of their individuality and their self and understand like the object for what it is and all of this do you think let's say you're enlightened Mm -hmm. do enlightened people experience interpersonal romantic feelings that are like specific to one person Mm. so the question I guess is if you've healed from all of this Mm -hmm. right I don't think it's possible yeah I don't think it's ever possible to truly I mean I maybe maybe I don't think that we're necessarily I think that we're probably supposed to experience this because we can't go around completely all the time unified in our we can't live in the womb and we're not dead so Mm. we're always individualized and we're always experiencing them I'm Buddhist so it's like we're always experiencing suffering and separation and pain and different things that happen so I think even a really well you know a person who is doing pretty good 
is still experiencing suffering and is still experiencing isolation and loneliness and the full range of human experiences, you know? And so, yeah. And, and so still, you know, needs connection and, and has horrible days and, and, or has great tragedies and needs that deep connection with someone else. Can we go back to this idea of, okay, so when you become an individual, let's say like your infant self, because it feels like you're kind of close to psychology and mm-hmm. the readings and things. So I have a question to ask. When you become an individual, you suddenly, you know, it's like your your universal self then gets ruptured and you become a person. Does that person and does how your your identity, your sense of individualism come from, in some ways, this dialogue between yourself and mm-hmm. the caregiver? And yes. is it in some way formed by the gaze of the caregiver? Well, yes. Mm-hmm. I think so. And when we talk about being in love and the gaze and forming our, you know, the the gaze of the beloved, how it sort of reinforces this new self, is that, again, just a kind of re-experiencing something Mm -hmm. really fundamental to like... I think that's totally true. That's lovely. Yes. Well, there's two things in the, in Winnicott, the idea is to have a good enough caretaker. So according to him, the requirement isn't really to have someone who's seeing us and validating us a hundred percent all of the time. It's like in order to be okay or to do a pretty good job, we have to have the experience of freaking out and soothing ourselves. So it's like, we need our caretaker to really see us and connect with us. And we need that bond sometimes. But from this theory, it's almost as important to then care for ourselves. That's why the blanket exists or whatever transitional object exists to care for ourselves and to imagine the other person is still there and still cares for us, even if they're gone, even if they're being rude and they're not paying attention to us. Our work psychologically is to still keep them care for ourselves as if we were them. Um, and then, yeah, and then the, the relationship to finding a partner um, later on is getting someone who's going to bring us back to ourselves and to find this unity, but also someone who's going to work with us to care for us well enough for ourselves and for what we need um, and be distracted and be a bad lover, be a bad you know partner to us sometimes. Um, and then listen to us when we're upset and we're, we're like, hey, you know, we're like a little kid, like crying, hey, listen to me, you know, you don't, when we're going to go to that place, they have to be able to go there with us. And then we have to be able to do that for them too. That's one of the best things about it is that it, it doesn't have to be perfect and that everyone experiences really nice things and really terrible things. And we seek people I believe we seek people to repair those ruptures. Or like you said, like, what did you say? Tra- I don't, I've never heard of that. Trauma. trauma oh, bonding. trauma, trauma bonding. That's, yeah. I think yeah. I've, I've sort of been guilty of that, but that's really like you're with someone and you're there, you're with them because of a shared trauma or trauma that you cause each other, you know, right. it's like right. it's just a recipe for abuse right. basically, but. Yeah. But it makes sense because it's a replication of what we're used to and and also like an opportunity to do that work again. So, I mean, ideally you could look at that like if people are in th- doing a lot of therapy and they're really self-aware that that has that could be an opportunity, but it sounds like a really challenging thing. But I, I mean, I don't know. I think everyone's engaged in that at some level. There's always that and there's always this universal bond. Well, may we be happy in love, I guess that's how it is. <laughs> Yes. So I guess we we can use love as a teacher yeah. for oh, us yeah. to kind of 
explore these early early fragmenting or the early individuation of our yeah yeah of ourselves yeah and I guess it does come back to identity at the end of the day in some ways right Mm. we learn about ourselves through yeah loving other people and I was asking that too. I was like, huh, who do we choose to love and how does that reinforce or question our own sense of ourselves? Do we want in in loving someone else, do we want to be changed? You know? Like is that part of the goal of it? Or in loving someone are we looking to be reinforced? Yeah, or accepted and reinforced. Right. Is there any connection back to the conversation we had earlier about Caitlyn Jenner and the, I forget the language you used, but the yeah. two targets? Like the, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I do feel like, at least for me, there is a sort of target, is it identity? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. when you fall in love with someone, you get a glimpse of an idealized self right? Mm-hmm. Like a self that you could become or you could be. And I don't know if I'm alone in this, but like someone sees you lovingly and you suddenly start to see yourself yeah. in a loving way. I don't know. I think you have to sort of see yourself in that loving way before, because I think you might not interpret it, even if they are looking at you in a loving way. If you don't love yourself, mm-hmm. you just don't have the tools, you know, the right optics to kind of see that love. You know, it's almost mm-hmm. like you're colorblind and you don't see that the red of love you just see gray it reinforces a way that you want that you have already internalized that you want to be or that you've done for yourself it's sort of how you see yourself maybe yeah yeah it like helps you go down that road when i think about the people i've loved they almost all of them have elements to them that are very different than me that i also find to be like an other in a positive way like very exciting and different but also things that I recognize as beautiful or valuable and different from myself and I want to be near them maybe as a way to expand myself or something but I find that differentness to be the exciting part of it but I've also had experiences of like mirroring or twinning you know where I feel like I am the same as this person I am Heathcliff like we are the same (laughs) um Mm -hmm. I had to bring that in right I guess it's like where you're at in your life also yeah yeah This was a great conversation. I really it was, enjoyed it. Yeah. I really appreciated it too. Yeah. That's fun. I know. I've never had this experience where like three brains thinking about the same topic <laughs> intentionally get together to like yeah. <laughs> it's int- it's really it's nice. Well, this was such a, a wonderful uh, evening here in Italy. So yeah. with with you guys. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. And And we will go see your film as soon as we are able. Yes. Yes, please. Um, We'll we'll make a special announcement on the episode. Whenever whenever the film is coming out, we'll make a special announcement for it. Okay. So all of you 30 listeners will have to go. Yes. All of us together. Maybe by then it will be 45 listeners. (laughs) Hopefully. We'll fill a theater for you. Okay. At yes. Least, at least please. half a third. If it's a small, it's just a small right. kind of a micro cinema boutique. We'll, we'll fill a micro cinema. cinema. Yeah. We'll definitely fill up a living room for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the important thing. As I hope, viewings. I hope all of our listeners also discuss this topic at their next dinner party. Yes. Which I think will be helpful. A helpful starting place. Yeah. Or just feel free. To play us during your dinner party. We'll just be the 
the voices. That's the niche that we're seeking, like dinner party fodder. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of where we're at. Yeah, I think I think that's a good good aim, I think. Good to know where your audience is. Mine, the chewing, drinking people at a table. French mispronouncing. I love it. Yeah. Exactly. All the way. All the way. <laughs> but still discussing it like, nonetheless. We try. We yeah. do, we do. Make a valiant effort. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Well, over and out. Over and out. Bye. We'll see you next week. We'll, you'll hear from us first. Okay. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.